Good morning and welcome to our service today. For those of you who don't know, my name is Matthew Dirksen and I'm the Youth and Young Adults Pastor here at Arendale Alliance Church. Um, we don't really have many announcements today, just a few, and one is obviously we're doing this uh, at my house. And that is because we are transitioning over the next week here-ish or so to the sanctuary. We'll be doing all of this uh, service preparation, the, the leading, the worship, the sermon from the, the stage in the sanctuary, hopefully, in the coming weeks. So uh, you'll notice this is different, but uh, it's a change, and they're very excited to see what happens next week, um, so tune in then. We have just a, a few announcements, and that is one, uh, the Quizzing International Meet has happened, is finishing up today, Sunday. Uh, it's been on from Friday uh, night to today, this morning. It should be finishing any time, or should be finished. Uh, but we want to thank you for your prayerful support of our quizzers, Joanne and Willem, who, who went from Arendelle Lines Church to Internationals this year. Thank you for supporting them. Thank you for supporting our program throughout the year. This, this quizzing program, our youth program, and our young adults program uh, cannot do anything without the support that you guys give through prayer and uh, your financial support your time, the time you give up for those different ministries, those of you who are involved in different ways. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, it, we, I've really, really am touched by the many people who support me and, and these different ministries and our leaders in many different ways. So thank you for your support and continue to support uh, all those who serve and give their time and energy uh, for the glory of God in those different areas. With uh, that, I have one more announcement with quizzing, and that is a bit of a sad and happy one. The sad is that this year, Jared and Brittany have decided that they're taking a break from leading quizzing. They've been leading it for three years, basically, and uh, it's been really great to work with them and great to see how they have shaped and, and molded the program in, in similar but unique ways. Uh, to that of the past and we've continued to see the ministry change and grow and that's really cool and so I want to thank you Jared and Brittany for uh, the last few years of service and for the time you've spent um, glorifying God through the quizzing program and trying to uh, do what God has called you and has called that ministry to be and, uh, and I just want to thank you for doing that for listening to God's calling in your life there and we look forward to seeing where God takes you uh, next, whatever that is, whatever step that is next, and we know this, we probably will see you back in quizzing as your kids grow up, you know, you never know, but that's probably going to happen, uh, so we look forward to seeing you back in the program in a, in a couple of years. Uh, the happy note is that we, we were needing someone to take over, and I'm pleased to say that Niall Willems has taken over the role of quizzing coordinator, quizzing leader, whatever you want to call it, um, and so I will be helping Niall, and Niall will kind of run the show, I'll just be giving oversight. And he'll develop a team around him uh, to kind of help him out. Uh, so we, we really look forward to that change. But I ask that you as a church pray for Niall. Pray for myself and uh, the team, the future team that will surround Niall. Uh, pray for wisdom as we prepare for the fall. Because we have no idea what quizzing will look like in the fall in, in a lot of ways. And so pray that God leads our hearts, leads our steps in uh in a way that we all feel this is where God has called us to, that we're united in our vision for that. And uh, we also ask that you do that, that you join with us in prayer for the youth and young adults programs as well, uh, as there's a lot of change happening. 
and we have no idea what the future holds, but we know that God is in control and that these ministries are important and we will continue to do them as, as God allows. And so uh, join us with us in praying for those different ministry areas and continue to support us in different ways. We're probably going to be looking for a few listeners for quizzing. I think we'll have our coaches somewhat um, good to go for next year. But we'll probably need some extra help, especially if there's quiz meets that are not virtual and we need to drive. We'll need a lot of parental help for drivers and all of that. So um, just want to ask if God is laying on your heart to serve in quizzing or in youth or in young adults that you please come talk to me because we do have holes in youth uh, for youth leaders. We do have holes in quizzing listeners. We have holes in young adult leaders. Um, and that even that program is changing a bit. So if you feel God's calling to serve in any of those ways, please talk to me. With that, let's uh, turn to prayer. And what I'm going to invite you to do, I'm just going to open this time up. Just real quick, I'm going to open the time up. And then I invite you to pause the video and pray as an individual, as a family, wherever you are. Just pray for whatever God leads you to pray. Uh, pray for different things on the prayer page of the newsletter. And there may be things on the screen. I'm not quite sure how this will work. And if there is, please pray for the different things on the screen. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are in control. That you are the God who created us. You are the God who created this world. And you are the God who are sustaining us and who are sustaining this world. Lord God, thank you that we don't have to worry we know, Lord God, what the future holds, that you have all of us in the palm of your hands and that you are, are not scared by anything. Nothing can scare you. Lord, you are a rock in our fortress in times of need. Thank you so much for coming to each one of us in the different ways we need you right now. Some of us have had amazing weeks. Some of us have had hard weeks. Thank you for supporting us, for encouraging us, for giving us peace, for strengthening us, for giving us joy. Thank you, Lord God, for all the ways you've given us amazing gifts. And Lord, may we now in turn recognize where everything comes from, and that it's all from you, and that all the glory goes to you. No matter what we have done, no matter what kind of week we've had, we know that all the glory belongs to you. And Lord God, as we pray together in our own homes as a church body, may you lead our prayers. May you unite our prayers. And Lord God, may we feel that we as a church are one in our prayers together, Lord God. Good morning. I hope you enjoy worshiping with us this morning. Right. 
Hello, I am Diego, and I'm going to do the Bible reading from Acts 7.37 to 8.3, the Christian Standard Bible Version. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people, as he raised me up. He is the one who was the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, and he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, May God for us will lead the way for us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has happened to him. At that time, they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and revealed in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer to me slain victims and sacrifice forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Riphan, the images that you made to worship, so I remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness, as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David, who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the heart is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things, <clears throat> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears? You are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestor not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stone, stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he has said this, he died, and saw the proof of their killing him.
that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout in the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was revenging the church by entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He committed them to prison. Good morning and welcome to this week's study of scripture. My name is Pastor Joran Green. I'm the lead pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. And for those of you just joining us, you're stepping into the middle of a series. Uh, for those who've been following the last few weeks, you know that we are now in the second half of Acts chapter 7. If you've got a Bible handy or a digital device with your Bible on it, I invite you to take it and turn with us to Acts chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 37. We've been following the adventures of the early church, and that's maybe a bad way to put it because it's really the story of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have that interesting contrast in Acts 1 where the disciples are waiting. Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promised Holy Spirit who's coming. We see the uncertainty on their part. How do we replace Judas? And they cast lots. In contrast to later when they make decisions, they don't cast lots anymore. Because in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, he molds and transforms this group of men into something more than they could ever be on their own. And we see Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 in the thousands who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They hear the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was really dead, that he rose again on the third day and is seated at the right hand. We've seen the miracles that the apostles have done, the challenges with the Sanhedrin, and most recently as we move to the story of Stephen, Stephen who was appointed as a deacon to help ensure that the widows are properly looked after. The practical needs of ministry are happening so the apostles can focus on the ministry of the word and a worship and a prayer. Well, he also looks an awful lot like an apostle because he can do miracles. And we find him in the synagogue of the freedmen, the Greek synagogue, because he's a Greek speaker, arguing about who Jesus Christ is and presenting a persuasive case that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Messiah and that he is the only place where life is found. Well, the conflict then comes. He's falsely accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. And the charges are very similar to what was brought against Jesus at his trial. And last week we looked at the start of that trial as Stephen is now essentially defending himself and his life because if the charges are true, he deserves death. And we saw last week as he walks the Sanhedrin through the early days of Israel, the story of Abraham and a little bit of Isaac and, and focusing on Joseph and how just as they were not recognized by the people of their day, their own brothers didn't see who they truly are. He, he's dropping a not so subtle hint at the Sanhedrin. You failed to recognize your own Messiah. With this in mind, we pick it up in Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 37. As Stephen's defense goes on as he explains who this Jesus Christ is, what God has done, and in particular raises a challenge to the Sanhedrin that they're just like their forefathers. The forefathers rejected God's anointed, so the Sanhedrin, in charging Jesus and killing Jesus, rejected God's anointed. With this in mind, would you bow with us in prayer? Gracious God, we invite you to come wherever we are this week and speak your truth to us. Holy Spirit, would you guide and would you lead us into all truth? 
Would you open our eyes and our hearts to see what it is you're saying to us? And Lord, would you change us according to your will and your purpose for your glory? Amen. Well, he moves on now to the story of Moses. We started talking a little bit about Moses in the last sermon, how Moses, there's a hint in Stephen's speech. Moses already knew God was calling him to be a deliverer because he intervened when he was about 40 years of age, trying to rescue from the Egyptian oppression, winds up killing an Egyptian and then fleeing for 40 years. We now come back to this story. This is the Moses verse 37 who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. Moses was rejected, but ultimately he is brought back at the age of 80, and we know the story of the Exodus. Stephen's talked about that, but now links back to something Moses says later. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 18 here, with this idea that there is a prophet coming. And I would distinguish this prophet as there's capital P prophet and there's a small p prophet. Because after Moses, we have a succession of prophets. We've got Nathan and Gad who work with King David. We've got Samuel, who's a kingmaker, who anointed David as king and anointed Saul as king. We've got Elijah. We have Elisha. We have Isaiah and Jeremiah. We have the 12 minor prophets. And this is just a sampling of the many prophets, small p, who come in the name of God, who come to challenge and to rebuke, and to correct, and to guide, and to encourage the people of God to intercede for them. Abraham was called a prophet. Moses is a prophet. There are many prophets that God has raised up among his people. But in Deuteronomy 18, and Stephen now links back to this, there's a sense that there is another meaning. There's the small p prophets, the many prophets who come. And there's the capital P prophet the great prophet, the one like Moses. Unless we think that we're misunderstanding this, keep in mind the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes and begins to teach the crowds. And we get the Beatitudes, and then he goes on to a series of instructions. Reoccurring phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 5, and it, it gets scattered throughout the next couple of chapters. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says, when he says, you've heard it said, he quotes the law of Moses. You've heard it said, do not kill. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, and he'll quote something, do not steal. And then he will turn around and say, but I say to you, and he makes the law harder. The law of Moses was all about what we do externally. Jesus comes and makes it about what is internal. And in fact, Matthew records that after he's done teaching, the crowds are amazed at the authority this man has to teach. They've never seen anything like it. The scribes and the Pharisees do not teach with the authority of Jesus because he's the capital P prophet. As Moses had the right to come and say, here is how you must live. He's the lawgiver on behalf of God. Here's how you must live. And we have the law of Moses that the Israelites love and regularly fail to follow. Jesus comes and makes the law about what is in our hearts. And so in saying this, in quoting from Deuteronomy here in verse 37, God will raise up a prophet. Stephen is taking the Israelites right back to their own law and that anticipation another lawgiver is coming. And he is pointing out, Jesus Christ is this other lawgiver. He points out 
as good as Moses was, and they keep saying, well, we must follow the law of Moses in Stephen's day. As good as Moses was, as much as he was loved, he was continually rejected. Our ancestors, verse 39, were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. This isn't years into his ministry. This is weeks after walking across the Dead Sea. They're in the wilderness and they begin to grumble and say, maybe we should go back. Maybe things were better in Egypt. At at this point, we could pause and make fun of the Israelites for their, their foolishness and the sin of their hearts. But anytime I start going down that path of thinking, it was only weeks ago you were slaves and mistreated and now you want to go back and how could your hearts go back? As much as I want to make fun of them, I'm forced to pause and ask, is my heart any different? Are our hearts today any different? There's many proverbs and and we'll save those for another day recorded reminding us of the folly of the human heart and how we return to our sin. Moses has only gone a couple weeks on Mount Sinai, meeting with God, receiving the law. And it's in that time that the Israelites say, make us gods to worship. And they go to Aaron and you can turn to uh, the middle, the latter part of Exodus around chapter 31, chapter 32 for the story of what happens there. And in fact, at one point when Moses is on the mountain, God says to him, I'm going down to kill the Israelites now because they have sinned. And he's only been gone a couple of weeks We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses, they ask. The Jews, the religious establishment, the leaders of Stephen's day are so quick to say, we follow Moses, we stand in the tradition of the law of Moses. And Stephen points out, your own forefathers who had Moses, who walked on dry ground, who saw the miracles and saw the plagues on Egypt and know what they fled from Egypt from only needed weeks to say, let's go back to our sin. Let's return to what we had before in their unbelief, their hardness of heart, in their selfishness. That's terrifying. We've got golden calf, and and Stephen's alluding to, not only does it start with this golden calf, but for the next few hundred years of Israel's history, Israel will struggle with idolatry. In fact, it is going to be well into the time of the kings. There's a regular pattern as we move through the various kings of Israel where the Israelites will maybe get a good king for a while and start to follow God, and then they will fall back. One thing that Stephen doesn't talk about, but is is always at the forefront of my mind when I think of this pattern, is David, who was so desperate to build the house of God. And Stephen talks about David. And God says, no, you can't build the house of God. You're a man of blood. And we, we don't know if that's a reference to his war or his murder of Uriah the Hittite. We're not sure. But you're a man of blood. Your son will build the temple. And ironically, Solomon, wisest man who ever lives, builds the temple of God, and yet at the end of his life, he's on the high places worshiping false gods. And he's not in the temple worshiping the true God. And these are the kind of challenges and charges that Stephen brings. He's the one on trial. He is now switched and put them on trial. Your forefathers never followed God faithfully. That's really the essence of his challenge to him. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern. And he talks about the tabernacle. He then goes on, talks about David 
and the temple briefly and verse 48, sorry, 49. Heaven is my throne, the earth my footstool. What sort of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what would my resting place be? Do not my hands make all these things? The Israelites have said, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple. In Stephen's day, the temple is actually undergoing a huge renovation. They're somewhere around the 40-year mark of about a 70-year reconstruction where Zerubbabel's temple, after the Babylonian exile, is taken. And it, it wasn't spectacular when they rebuilt it after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was a temple, but it was not like Solomon's had been. But a building project is undertaken about 40 years before Stephen, where they're making it beautiful. They're making it spectacular. They have that temple. And yet Stephen points out to them, you had the tabernacle, you had the temple, but God does not live in these things. They're too small a thing. It's not that he doesn't want the temple. God gave the directions for the tabernacle. But they have placed their focus on the wrong things. And finally, Stephen's charge here in verse 51. And these are heavy, heavy words. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. And this is the essence of Stephen's challenge to them. They've said to Stephen, you're not following the law. You've spoken against the temple. Stephen's speech at this point has made it clear he is not against Moses. He is not against the law. Just as Jesus wasn't. Jesus was accused of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. What does Jesus say about the law? I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And none of the law will pass away. Not even the least stroke of the pen will pass away, he says. The law matters, but he is the fulfillment of it. Stephen is arguing the same things Jesus did. And the pattern of the Israelites, the pattern of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Israelites, is just continuing this ongoing rejection. God has said, here's how we are to live. Here are the things we are to do and not to do. Here's how we are to worship. Here's what not to worship. And the Israelites have been in rebellion. And his charge is, you are no different than your forefathers. You dress up the tombs of the prophets, but your forefathers killed them. You claim to be children of Abraham, but you do not follow in the faith of Abraham. And before we get too harsh on anyone, we need to stop and ask, is this any different of, is this any different of my own heart? I find his, his comment, you stiff-necked people of uncircumcised Heart and ears. These are heavy words because they cut me to the quick. Where have I hardened my heart to God? Where have we hardened our hearts to God? They're guilty as their forefathers were guilty. And the pattern has not changed in generations. There have been changes, but the overall pattern has remained. They don't worship false gods like they once did. But Jesus still points out, your hearts are far from me. You don't understand what it means that God demands mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus and his clash with the Sadducees and the Pharisees demonstrates. They've changed the form of the sin. But our hearts are always dreadfully wicked. This is Stephen's charge. Well, the story doesn't finish there, unfortunately, for Stephen. After the charges are laid, that response of the crowd while he's 
speaking in verse 54 that they're gnashing their teeth at him. And, and that, that's an alarming image, but it really shows he has enraged the Sanhedrin. They are angry. And just as they wanted Jesus dead, they want him dead. And now he has, his, his words have hit home. And I suspect there's a fair amount of shame in the crowd as the truth of what Stephen has said is heard. And how often when we are shamed, how often when we were rebuked and our sin is exposed, is our first instinct, like Adam, to cover up our shame and hide our shame rather than to deal with it. Well, verse 56. As this crowd is angry at him, Stephen's words, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He has proclaimed the resurrected Jesus. He now sees the resurrected Jesus. Lots of debate why is he standing and what's the symbolism of it. Uh, That's actually a fascinating theological question that takes us to remember. Jesus is there to welcome the first martyr of the church home. He stands in wait of Stephen, who sees his Lord, while on trial, proclaims his Lord. And with these final words, Stephen seals his doom. And remember, the the comment made at the end of chapter 6, he looked like an angel. His countenance was changed. And it reminds me a little bit of kind of wondering what's going on. Is there a connection there with the Mount of Transfiguration where God's beginning to give him a glimpse of his glory. But now Stephen sees Jesus in his dying moments. And he tells the Sanhedrin, it's true. His, His declaration here is his final testimony that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God. Well, their reaction is pretty serious. They rush at him, they drag him out, and they begin to kill him. Under Roman law, this isn't legal, but the Romans would turn a blind eye in a case like this, that the Sanhedrin, if they don't make a habit of it, could occasionally kill someone, and the charges are serious enough, the Romans would have said, settle the matter internally. But Stephen's innocent. The charges that were leveled, Stephen has addressed those charges, and has actually demonstrated the people on trial deserving death or the Sanhedrin, not him. But interestingly, the last thing he says, verse 60, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And after this, he dies. This is a terrible story in a sense, because Stephen did nothing wrong. Stephen proclaimed Jesus. He modeled the life of Christ. He performed miracles. He was serving the tables of widows, and he's killed for his faith in Jesus. What do we do with this? I want to suggest four things. And this is not a complete list. There's so much more we could take from Stephen's speech. There's so many nuances of what he suggests. And it's worth spending time and going back to the original stories and spending time in Deuteronomy 18 and spending time in the story of David prepping for the temple, spending time in the life of Joseph. But four that we're going to take out as we end, uh, not only the speech, but we're going to take a pause on our Acts series And we're going to go to the book of Amos for a little while. But four things I want to emphasize for us this week. Number one, this idea of the sovereign God and the fullness of time and how God has a plan. His plan is never thwarted and he always brings to pass what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, and how he wants. Stephen goes back to Abraham, to Joseph, to Moses, to David. And in doing so, draws out the parallels to the life of Jesus. And what becomes apparent in Stephen's speech, and Luke develops this in his gospel, and Matthew talks about in his gospel, 
when Jesus comes, this is not a surprise. The first prophecy of the coming Messiah is Genesis chapter 3. The first hint of Jesus even existing is Genesis chapter 1. And the more we delve into the Old Testament, the more we realize God has had this redemption plan since the very beginning, before the foundations of time. And he has been moving us, moving the pieces, moving the circumstances to bring about his will. Just as Abraham walked with God and God ministered there, just as Joseph was not recognized by his brothers and Moses was not recognized by his brothers, these things are all a foreshadow of Jesus who will come. Because God is sovereign and God is in control. And sometimes my life feels like it's out of control. We're, we're in COVID season where we're asking, when are we reopening as a church? When do I get to go back? When are things going to return to the way that they once were? We don't know. But God knows because God is sovereign and God is in control. And we can resist and we can complain and we can fight in our own lives against those moments where we realize we're not in control or we can learn to live by faith and by trust. And my tendency is I like control. I, I, I like to live my life my way. I like my rules and my structure and my organization. And I think that I know the way life should work. And I know every time I start thinking that way, God probably either hangs his head in frustration or he giggles or some combination of both because he's all powerful. And he's the one who can accomplish. Will I trust God and his plan? Second, that we take away from this. Are we open or are we heart of heart? Just as we see that God is completely sovereign and, and doing this work and, and we need to recognize and trust God in his will, we also need to ask, have we blinded ourselves to the work of God? Have we blinded ourselves to what God wants us to do? I think in my life of some of the things I said I would never do. One of the things I said I would never do, I would never be a youth pastor. My first church, I was not a youth pastor. I was a halftime youth pastor. And I'm pretty sure that was part of God's sense of humor. Have we hardened our hearts to be open to the things God has for us? That's just a practical, real-life example. But I think of some of the places where I've said, well, God doesn't say that. God doesn't do that. And I put bounds on God or I've put bounds on my obedience to God or my trust of God one of the challenges I sometimes find in my soul will I ignore God speaking because I'm uncomfortable with who says it for whatever reason because maybe we've had a conflict or a clash or they don't fit my theological box I've lived in that tension actually for 17 years as my students 17, 18, 19 year olds come and challenge me and I've had some quite angry with me and have come and said, what you said or did was wrong. Will I harden my heart? Or will I recognize the truth of God speaking? The Sanhedrin rejects the truth. And they are the latest in a long line of history that has rejected the truth. Are we any different? I don't make fun of the Sanhedrin. I weep for them. And I see the sin in my own soul. I look at the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt and realizing the foolishness in my own soul. How quickly would I return to my sin? Third, so what? Will we proclaim Jesus Christ? Plain and simple. Will we testify to Jesus? 
We're in a world that's realizing we're not as smart as we thought we were. We're not as powerful as we thought we were. We've been brought to our knees by something we cannot even see that has us afraid to even be in close proximity to each other. And we cannot solve this problem ourselves. That's the world we live in. But think about the God we've just talked about, his sovereignty, his power, and our need to be open to him. If he is the creator of the universe, if he is the all-powerful and great physician, should we not be proclaiming him in this season? I, I, that, that call for us as a church has never ceased. And as I look around Canada and realize we're quickly becoming a secular nation, my heart breaks. In talking to my friends in Australia and talking about the challenges of the church world in Australia and how they are very similar to us, my heart breaks. In watching the way our world works and seeing the only hope we have for the, the, the problems that seem to pile up and it seems we move into COVID and another problem and another crisis and another challenge and another crisis, they will never end. And the only solution is Jesus Christ. Will we share him? even if it costs us. Now, for most of us, we're not facing death if we talk about Jesus. We may be facing mockery. We may be facing ridicule. Will we talk about the hope that is in us? Will we talk about our eternal destiny? Will we talk about the certainty we have that Jesus Christ said He's coming back for us, and we know that it's true, and we're reminded of that here in Stephen, because there's Jesus, He's standing, He's waiting to receive Him the first martyr of the church age. At some point, we'll probably study the book of Revelation, and we're going to find a lot more martyrs, and Jesus is there waiting. And Jesus is watching. And Jesus will come back in wrath to avenge his martyrs because God loves his people. Will we share that with others? And finally, our last idea here, so significant, is that of forgiveness. As Stephen is dying, They've lied about him. They've mistreated him. They're stoning him to death, which is a terrible way to die, where we we throw large rocks on someone until they're dead. His dying declaration there, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Will we be a people of forgiveness? And I actually want to leave a question on the table. And it's somewhat unfair because, as I've alluded to, we're going to move into the book of Amos for a number of weeks. We're going to come back to the book of Acts. I want to leave a question hanging. For us to consider. As we consider, does our obedience to God really matter? Does forgiving others really change anything? Does guarding our hearts and keeping our hearts soft before God really change anything? Think of the example of Stephen and consider this question. If Stephen had not been willing to speak the truth in love, if he had not been willing to go on trial, to ask for the forgiveness of those approving of his death, if he had not been willing to do all the things that he had done to be the man of God that Luke shows us him shows us that he is, if we did not see that fruit of the Spirit coming out of him, if all those things had not happened, would Saul, who will become Paul, have been ready to encounter Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? What did Stephen's obedience and Stephen's life do to prepare the heart of others to be changed and to walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for the example of Stephen, his boldness to speak the truth in love, his reminder that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, his call to repent, 
his challenge to not just the Sanhedrin, but to us, that our hearts are hard. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. Give us the courage to hear your voice. Give us the courage to read your word and see you and see what you want us to be and to love as you want us to love and to live as you want us to live. Give us the courage to be faithful, holy God. Thank you for his example of forgiveness and living out the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, as we consider that question in the coming weeks, that when we walk faithfully with you, maybe it does change lives. Lord, would you give us the courage to walk faithfully with you? Holy Spirit, would you come and grow your fruit in your people? In the name of Jesus. Amen.
見れて。